Well, you know, there's something in a name, and uh, just so you know, as you know, my name is Russ, but, and I've told some of you this before, but actually my full name is Russell Charles Cottonwar Jr., and uh, that's what my parents named me at birth, what my mom would call me when she was really mad at me. But mostly it was just Russ, but it was not always this way, as some of you know. As a child, I grew up with another name. My nickname was Sam, and uh, like Sammy up there. It originated in a very strange way. My parents spent a lot of time with some close friends who had a child about the same time that my mom had me, and they had a girl, and we grew up together as infants and toddlers, and to be cute, they referred to us as Sam and Sapphire. And well, as we grew older, her name was dropped in preference of her real name, which was Cheryl, but mine stuck, and for 12 years, I was known by my entire extended family, which is quite huge, by the way, as Sam. In fact, for the longest time, some of my family members and a lot of my friends never knew my real name. And that all changed, however, when I moved to Maine. I would bring some of my new friends home from school, and they would hear my family calling me Sam. And, of course, it became a big joke and an occasion to poke fun at me on the playground. And finally, at 13 years old, I'd had enough, and I forced my family to begin to call me by a name that they were not used to calling me. They called me, if they called me Sam, I simply would not listen. I wouldn't answer them. I'd refuse to answer to it. And long story short, it was a painful transition for every single one of us but an important one in my young mind because I wanted to be known for who I really was. And there's something about a name that just lets people know who you are. Some people's names are funny. Some people are a little embarrassed by their names. Maybe some of you are. Some people, in contrast to what I did, changed their names to something else, as many, as you know, celebrities have done, right? And uh, so I want to play a little game with you this morning as we start and uh, see if you can identify these famous people who have changed their names, okay? Let's start with the world of sports and see if you know some, two of these anyway. Ferdinand Lewis Alcindor. Who's that? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right? Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. Muhammad Ali, pretty simple, right? Some people change their names over and over and over again because they're not satisfied with their names. Like this bad boy rapper blast from the past, Sean Combs, also known as Puff Daddy. Combs, right? Then he dropped the Sean and the Combs and just called himself Puff Daddy. And then he went back to Sean P. Diddy Combs. And then he dropped all of that and just called himself P. Diddy. And then he dropped the P. And he simply called himself Diddy. I mean, what's next? Diddly squat? Actually, I just read this week, this very week, that Diddy has continued to change his name since then. In 2008, he started going by Sean John, and then in 2011, he changed his name to Swag. 
In 2017, he confused his fans yet again. In a video shared to Twitter, he explained, I've been praying on this, get this, he's been praying on this, and I know it's risky because it could come off kind of corny to some people, but I've decided to change my name again. I'm just not who I was before. I'm something different now, so my new name is Love. Also known as Brother Love. He continued, I will not be answering to Puffy, Puff Daddy, P Diddy, Puff uh, Diddy, or any of my other monikers, but Love or Brother Love. However, he has continued to go by Diddy on social media and in public even today. All right, here's a little quiz for you. See if you can identify these celebrities. Karen Johnson. That's Whoopi Goldberg. Sherilyn Sarkeesian. Cher. Thomas Mapather IV. Tom Cruise. Francis Ethel Gum. Somebody must know this. Judy Garland. Catherine Elizabeth Hudson. No, it's Katy Perry. From the world of wrestling, Terry Jean Bollet. Hulk Hogan. You guys are really good. I can see this. This is going well. And from the world of boxing, Walker Smith Jr. Sugar Ray Robinson. All right, you surely will get some of these, okay? From the world of music, Curtis Jackson, 50 Cent. Who's that? <laughs> Peter Jean Hernandez. Bruno Mars. How about that? Reginald Kenneth Dwight. Elton John. Very good. Richard Starkey. Come on. Ringo Starr. Ringo Star. Robert Zimmerman, Bob Dylan. We see we get some musicians here and this old school classic musicians. And Steve Land Judkins, Stevie Wonder, Stevie Wonder. All right, so here's one for you. If somebody can get this, I'll give you a $10 Dunkin' Donuts card. Here it is. Sarah Ophella Cannon. You got it. You got it. Woo. You see me afterwards and I'll make sure you get that. <laughs> Here's one. Henry John Duchendorf. John Denver. Mark Sinclair Vincent. Vin Diesel. Huh. Some people are known by one name, right? like Sting, or Bono, or Adele, Cher, Madonna, Oprah, J-Lo, Prince, Tiger, Kobe, Magic, and our former president, W. Right? Some people are known by their number. See if you can guess these, 007, yeah, 86, Maxwell Smart. Number three. Dale Earnhardt, and number 12, 
Tom Brady, right? Some people have alter egos. This will be easy for you. Clark Kent is. Bruce Wayne is. Peter Parker is. Anakin Skywalker is. Darth Vader. And some people are known as the something, right? So the Duke. John Wayne. You know what his real name is? Marion Michael Morrison. The Fridge. William Perry. The Mailman. Carl Malone. The Boss. Bruce Springsteen. The Rock. Dwayne Johnson. The King. No, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. You have no idea how disappointed I am of you, with you right now. It's fun to play little games, isn't it, with names? But gaining an accurate understanding of the real person behind the name by which they are identified is of paramount, paramount importance, isn't it? At least it is when it comes to Jesus. Throughout the scriptures, Jesus is called by a multitude of names. Some he assumed himself. Others were given to him involuntarily. But in the waterfall of titles that were given to him, he was not confused about either his name or who he was. I wonder, however, how confused the world is about who he is. Or how confused we are in the church more importantly, I'm becoming increasingly concerned about how confused you and I might be. How important is his name? Well, you tell me. Listen to these scriptures. John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who call on what? His name, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 33. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Jen just put one on the screen this morning. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, we read, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And in Revelation chapter 3, verses 8 and 12, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and I have kept my word, and have not denied my name. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. 
and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Finally, Revelation 22 and verse 4 says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, in light of all of that, it seems pretty important that we understand his name, isn't it? In her book, Just Give Me Jesus, Anne Graham Lotz points out that one of the two qualifications John gave for membership in God's family is to believe in Jesus' name. And believing in his name means we must be willing to commit our lives to all that he is as represented by his name. And she goes on to say that many people seem to have a screen door relationship with Jesus. They talk to him in prayer, and he talks to them through his word. And they can enjoy his presence, but they never invite him to come in into their lives as Savior and Lord. He's on the outside looking in. So we seem to keep Jesus sometimes at arm's length, partly because we have a hard time identifying him. One writer used this analogy. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, wrote, a man stands by a window gazing into the street, and outside people are shading their eyes with their hands and looking up into the sky. And because of the overhang of the building, though, the man cannot see what it is that they're pointing toward. We who live 2,000 years after Jesus have a viewpoint not unlike this man standing by the window. We hear the shouts of exclamation. We study the gestures and words in the Gospels and the many books that have been spawned from it. Yet no amount of neck craning will allow us a glimpse of Jesus in the flesh. For this reason, he writes, sometimes those of us who look for Jesus cannot see past our own noses. The Lakota tribe, for example, refers to Jesus as the, quote, the buffalo calf of God, unquote. The Cuban government distributes a painting of Jesus with a carbine slung over his shoulder. Modern scholarship further muddies the picture. If you peruse the academic books available at seminary bookstores, you may encounter Jesus as a magician who actually married Mary Magdalene, Serious scholars write these books with little sign of embarrassment. Athletes come up with creative portrayals of Jesus that elude modern scholarship. Norm Evans, former Miami Dolphins lineman, wrote in his book On God's Squad, quote, I guarantee you Christ would be the toughest guy who ever played this game if he were alive today. I would picture a six-foot-six-inch, 260-pound defensive tackle who would always make the big plays and would be hard to keep out of the backfield for offensive linemen like myself, unquote. That's who Jesus is to him. Fritz Peterson, former New York Yankee, for example, more easily fancies Jesus in a baseball uniform. He says, quote, I firmly believe that if Jesus Christ was sliding into second base, that he would knock the second baseman into left field and break up the whole double play. Christ might not throw a spitball, but he would play hard within the rules, unquote. That's his view of Jesus. In the midst of all this confusion, how do we answer the question, 
who was Jesus. Because even in the church, my friends, we have painted him in light of the way we want to see him. Is that right? You know what he is to the church at large? He's a purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive, socially conscious, political conservative, racially sensitive, revolutionary who hangs out at home groups, pro-life rallies, coffee houses, and Chris Tomlin concerts. That's who we think Jesus is. Who is Jesus anyway? In the midst of such confusion, how does one answer that question? History doesn't necessarily narrow the field either. A scholar at the University of Chicago once estimated that more has been written about Jesus in the last 20 years than in the previous 19 centuries. Yet as followers of the one whose name we bear, you and I, we must eventually come to a personal and spiritual decision regarding this issue, a critical juncture at which we are pressed for a decision. Because the power of who we are as a church, as well as who we are as individuals who claim to follow Jesus, is inextricably connected to who he really was and is. As Christian men and women, husbands, wives, parents, children, pastors, evangelists, teachers, musicians, etc., we must all face the probing question of Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Because the power of the church rests upon the person of Christ. Today and next week, we're going to embark upon a study of just who Jesus said that he is. Specifically through the lens of John's gospel. In almost soundbite fashion... Well, that will be next week. Today, we're going to look at Matthew's gospel. But in soundbite fashion, Jesus made claims that were not only verbally astounding, but spiritually arresting. And John highlights seven of those, and we're going to look at those next week. You could call them, I like to call them, the seven wonders of a Christian's world. They're spiritual shockwaves because they sent soul-shaking reverberations throughout the crowds that drew not only controversy, but death threats. Whatever we may believe, the crowds were not dull to what Jesus claimed about himself. Seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus describes his identity using metaphors which pointed directly to the God of the Old Testament whose revered name stopped the Jews in their tracks and immediately silenced their tongues. I am who I am, God told Moses when Moses asked the name, what name he should use as the one who sent him on his mission to Pharaoh. God said in Exodus 3, 14, you tell them, I am has sent me to you. That's what God said. And in each of his I am statements that we're going to see next time, Jesus identifies himself as the self-existent God of the Old Testament with whom there is no equal. And you and I can completely miss their meaning unless we discipline ourselves to seek 
to understand their implications for us personally, practically, and corporately as a church body. Jesus said, I am. Over and over again, he said it. And when he says, I am, he puts an end to our inflated view of ourselves and our notion that Jesus is whoever we want him to be, that he will take the shape and the form and the character of whoever we think that he is. I submit to you, as someone as well said, that Jesus is not limited to our understanding of who he is, nor is he vulnerable to the latest fad in God consciousness. He's not an iPhone God. He's not an iPhone God whose truths can be personally programmed and shuffled around so that we only hear the things we want to hear, the things we like to hear. He is who he is. I am, Jesus said. This is what he said. We're going to unpack these next time. I am the bread of life. He's the sustainer of life. I am the light of the world. He's the illuminator of life, the eliminator of darkness. I am the door of the sheep. He's the gateway to life. I'm the good shepherd. He's the keeper of life. I'm the resurrection and the life. He's the giver of new life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's the sum of all of life. And I am the true vine. He said he's the source of all life. We live in a generation flushed with personal control, don't we? We want control. We think we have it. But as Nancy Guthrie points out, she says, we were made for knowing God in the expanse of who he is. So do you really want to discover and know Jesus for who he really is? Or are you satisfied with who, whom you've made him out to be? This is the crossroads at which every single disciple of Christ stands. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verses 13 to 18. Follow along as I read. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. The most critical question of your life and my life is the one that we see here. Who is Jesus? More importantly, who do you say 
that he is. It's been called the climax of Jesus' teaching ministry, right here. The apostles' final exam, examination, and it's ours as well. It's the question that no one on earth can escape. As John MacArthur put it, every soul will be pinned against the wall of eternity and forced to answer that question at one point or another. And the answer to that question is of monumental importance, for upon it rests the outcome of a person's eternal destiny and the overcoming power for the church's ministry. Let me say that again. The answer to that question is of monumental importance, for upon it rests the outcome of a person's eternal destiny and the overcoming power for the church's ministry. This passage clearly outlines how important that understanding must be to us if we are to fulfill what Jesus calls us and commissions us to do. If the power of the church rests upon the person of Christ, then every one of us must come to these crossroads that we're going to look at. The first one is this, is that the person of Jesus confronts us at the crossroads of worldly indulgence and Christ-honoring commitment. The crossroads of worldly indulgence and Christ-honoring commitment. That's from verses 13 to 15 here in Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, it says, is where he was asking the, disciple, the disciples this, these questions. And he starts out with, who do the people say that I am? It's interesting that Christ chose the district of Caesarea Philippi to test his followers. Caesarea Philippi represented the worst evils of culture. It was filled with idols, shrines, and immoral worship practices. In fact, its original name was Paneas after the Greek god Pan, who was half man and half goat who according to pagan mythology was born in a nearby cave in Caesarea Philippi. For years, people in this area worshiped false gods, including Baal, which you can read about in Joshua chapter 11 and 12 in the Old Testament. And several miles away in the city of Dan, King Jeroboam had set up a golden calf on a high place in 1 Kings chapter 12, leading Israel into abhorrent worship practices which angered God and brought down the wrath of God. In Jesus' time, people in the region continued to worship Greek fertility gods. And that's what Caesarea Philippi represented where Jesus is asking the disciples these questions. Now at the base of a cliff, more than 100 feet high, and there's a picture of it behind me, Temples and shrines dedicated to various deities had been built. In fact, the cliff could also be referred to as the rock of the gods because idols and statues were placed into small niches cut into the rock all around. Against the cliff and in a large cave in the third century BC was a cult center dedicated to the fertility god Pan. And you can see that down in the corner. Originally, a spring gushed from the large cave mouth, which was believed to provide an entrance to the underworld itself. 
that underworld having the title Hades. Now, Josephus described the cave as a deep cavern filled with water, the bottom of which no one had ever reached back in those days. The presence of the temples against this massive rock cliff rising above the fresh water gushing from the cave's gaping mouth provide this powerful imagery as a backdrop to Jesus' landmark questions to the disciples in this text. It could have been here, right here, standing near these pagan temples of Caesarea Philippi that Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And it's also here in the midst of our own decadent culture that Jesus confronts us with the same choice of what the world says about Jesus and what we personally believe about Jesus. That crossroads. And so... If any title rivals the title, the Son of God for Jesus, for the place of greatest importance, as it relates to the name of Jesus, it's this one that Jesus used of himself right here in this text, Son of Man. In verse 13, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Jesus used it of himself more than any other title that he used of himself. It was clearly recognized by the Jews as an Old Testament title of the coming Messiah. You can look that up in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. The actual term is used there, the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man. And you can see Jesus depicted in that prophecy. So let's look at the public's identification. Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, the answer here is varied, but noble, right? They're giving good answers. People recognize the character and the message of John the Baptist reincarnated in Jesus. They thought that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated. Even Herod thought this. If you look at Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, you'll see that. Others believe that he was the fiery and intense Elijah, the supreme Old Testament prophet who worked miracles. He thought that Jesus, they thought that Jesus might be the reincarnation of Elijah because Elijah was supposed to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Still others identified him with the prophet Jeremiah who grieved deeply over Israel's hypocrisy and rejection of God. And the rest simply saw him as one of the prophets. Well, they saw Jesus as holy, supernaturally powerful, intensely zealous for God, and an amazing teacher of truth. But guess what they didn't see him as? Messiah. They didn't see him as the Christ. And when he was paraded into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and they were screaming Hosanna to the son of David, it seemed like there was a little inkling that they might accept him that way. But then they crucified him. 
As one man said, they came as close to God's ultimate truth as they could without fully recognizing and accepting it. See, it was a high view that they had of Jesus, to be sure, but it was an incomplete view, it was an inadequate view, and I might add that it was inappropriate. Craig Keene writes that viewing Jesus in such terms thus managed to fit him into categories of thought that already existed rather than letting the Messiah himself redefine their categories by his identity. They refused to let his identity redefine them. And isn't that exactly what people do today? Exactly? They redefine Jesus to fit their own view rather than let him redefine them. I once read some statements made to Glamour magazine by one popular singer-actress who will remain unnamed, who, by the way, is the daughter of a Baptist youth minister. As she said, quote, my spirituality has grown though my thoughts on religion have changed. Now I might take encouragement from a Buddhist in certain situations, whereas when I was younger, I would have said, no, what would Jesus do? Her pragmatic compromises have also led her to say things like this, quote, I want to show my body, and that's okay, because God gave me my body. I definitely want to turn heads, unquote. After reading such misguided drivel, C.S. Lewis's famous passage from Mere Christianity rings in my ears. This is what C.S. Lewis said. Quote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse, unquote. Uh, C.S. Lewis cuts right to the chase, doesn't he? But Jesus never waffled on his identity. Jesus says, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. I'm the light. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the vine. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. You see, no one in his right mind talks like that. If people talk like that today, we would call them crazy. He was either the son of God sent to save the world, writes Philip Yancey, or an imposter deserving crucifixion. And the people of his day understood the binary choice precisely. They knew exactly what the choice was. Do we? Does the world around us? The question Jesus wants to ask today is, do you understand the choice? So here's the personal question in verse 15 that Jesus poses. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? See, it doesn't matter what the world says. Who do you say I am? For over two and a half years, Jesus was moving to this very moment with them. 
They heard him teach. They saw the miracles. They experienced his presence with them, walking all around Palestine. They had been planting and watering and cultivating seeds of truth into the soil of their minds about who he was. And now it was time to declare their decision. And Jesus pressed them to the mat. And I read these words, and I read these words in a short devotional that said this. Jesus is not content with a vague form of followership. He calls for a confession and a commitment of faith because he knows we'll need it to follow where he leads to the cross. See, only by recognizing who Jesus is will we be empowered and sustained as we follow him into wherever he leads us. And so the second thing here that we encounter in this text is that the person of Jesus demands an individual confession of us. That's in verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Nancy Guthrie writes again, he forced the crisis asking his disciples the question, that is the crisis question in all of our lives. Who do you say I am? That's the most critical question of your life. Who is Jesus to the world and who is Jesus to me personally? You see, in stark contrast to the pagan scene around them, Peter stakes his claim and speaks the words that forever marks the turning point in every believer's life. This, what Peter says, is the turning point not only in Peter's life, but in your life and in mine and in every person that comes face to face with Jesus. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the anointed one, the rightful king of Israel. You are the living one over against all dead and lifeless so-called gods of this world. You are the Messiah. You are supreme over every God that we encounter in this world, or so-called God. Now, up to this point, many of the disciples, including Peter, had made definitive statements about Jesus, but none to the depth of this one that Peter made. Whereas their previous declarations may have been motivated by intellectual analysis, possibly, or emotional excitement, or even wishful thinking, this one that Peter gave here was of a different nature. It was not the result of human reasoning or intellectual assent. This one was of unique character as indicated by Jesus' clarification. Look at verse 17. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. That's what Bar-Jonah means. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, you didn't get this on your own. God revealed it to you. He took the scales from your eyes. He opened up your mind and heart. Now, friends, anyone can say these words, but only a person whose mind and heart has been touched and changed, whose eyes have been opened by the Spirit of God, can confess it, commit to it, and continue to live in it 
with deep conviction for the rest of their life. And Peter did that. And you and I need to do that. If you're only mouthing the words that you read here, your life eventually will betray you. That's not to say that as a true believer that I will never experience times of doubt or weakness or confusion about, about what Jesus said and did. The disciples all experienced those times of doubt and weakness. But like Peter and the other 10, I will never again doubt who Jesus is. Can you say that? I hope you can. Because he's the Christ He's the son of the living God, my savior, my Lord, in whom I trust and whom I take refuge. Will you say that? Where do you stand today? You may be thinking to yourself, you don't know what kind of crisis I'm in. You don't know what kind of crisis my life is, I'm dealing with in my life right now. Well, friend, listen to these insightful words by one writer. Whether you know it or not, there is a crisis in your life deeper than any crisis lurking on the surface. Or perhaps the crisis is being brought about by God to bring you to a place of confession and commitment. But each of us faces the same deep inner crisis of faith, demanding that we declare where we stand with Jesus. We all need to declare it. So my question to you is, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Is he merely an object of your fascination, a source of inspiration, or is he more than that? You know, he's the focal point of all human history. But are you willing to make him the centerpiece of your life? That's the critical question. the source from which you and I draw our identity from, our security and our serenity. See, if you are, it won't be because of what I say or what a person next to you says. It will happen because God reveals this truth to you in your soul and makes it alive in you just like he did with Peter. So the third thing that we look at here is that the person of Jesus is embraced only through spiritual revelation. Verse 17, and Jesus said to him, blessed are you, for flesh and blood did not reveal it to you. You know, it's, it's primarily through the words and works of Christ recorded in scriptures and, and illumined by the spirit that brings people to the place of decision. And once we make that decision, we have a crucial role to play in the kingdom, don't we? A crucial role. And that's the fourth thing that we see here as we finish this text off, is that the person of Jesus is our only foundation. Look at verse 18 again. But I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower. Now, whatever these statements mean in this, these, these last verses here in this text, 
about rocks and gates and keys and binding and loosing and is beyond the scope of this particular message to outline all those details. That's another sermon altogether. But two things are very certain here that you can walk away with. As author John Eldridge put it, there is a, this is a world at war and we have a crucial role to play. And underlying all of this is the fact that Jesus is our only hope. Amen? Amen. Standing near the pagan temples of Caesarea Philippi now, imagine those pictures again. Jesus answered Peter's great confession. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Although Christian traditions debate the theological meaning of those words upon this rock and what that refers to, Jesus' words also may have had a symbolic tenor to them. Maybe as he spoke, just picture it now, disciples there, Jesus is there. They may have been at that place that you saw the pictures of. Maybe as he spoke, he pointed or he waved, just waved his hand around to the rock cliff in the pagan temple indicating that his church would be built on places just like this. Just like Caesarea Philippi. That a rock literally filled with niches or pagan idols where ungodly values dominated that his church would be built at the crossroads of eternal life and eternal death. I believe the central issue in these verses is the promise that Jesus would build his church and nothing, not even the power of death, nor all of the evil's dominion would be able to thwart that progress. None. And by the way, Jesus is the foundation, isn't he? He's the chief cornerstone. He's the rock. He's the rock that we can build upon. It is the definitive promise of a divine savior. Every single word here is significant. The personal pronoun, I. Human effort can only produce human results, right? Jesus said, I will build my church. The promised process will build. No matter how oppressive, no matter how hopeless the outward circumstances may appear from a human perspective, Christ will build his church. God's people belong to a cause that will not fail. Did you know that? We belong to a cause that cannot fail because Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The precious product, Jesus said, I will build my church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not anybody else's church. It's Jesus' church, isn't it? I will build my church, my called out ones. Christ does not build his kingdom apart from his church or his church apart from his kingdom. Can I say that again? Christ does not build his kingdom apart from his church nor the church apart from his kingdom. And then there's the preeminent power and the gates of hell or Hades will not overcome it, will not prevail against it. Gates were defensive structures in the ancient world. And by saying that the gates of hell would not overcome, Jesus is suggesting that those gates were going to be breached. 
Jesus was commissioning them to, and us to a huge task to penetrate the evil darkness, to bring the church to the very places that were most filled with moral corruption. Listen to these challenging words by John Eldridge in his book, Waking the Dead. We live in a far more dramatic, far more dangerous story than we ever imagined. The reason we love the Chronicles of Narnia or Star Wars or The Matrix or The Lord of the Rings is that they are telling us something about our lives that we never ever get on the evening news or from most pulpits, he says. Well, you're getting it today. This is our most desperate hour. Without, his, with this, without this burning in our hearts, he says, we lose the meaning of our days. It all withers down to fast food and bills and voicemails and who really cares anyway? Do you see what has happened, he asks? The essence of our faith has been stripped away. The very thing that was to give our lives meaning and protect us, this way of seeing, has been lost or stolen from us. Notice that those who have tried to wake us up to this reality were usually killed for it. The prophets, Jesus, Stephen, Paul, most all of the disciples, in fact. Has it ever occurred to you that someone was trying to shut them up? That's what he writes. You see, things are not what they seem. This is a world at war. And now for the most stunning news of all, you and I have a crucial role to play in that war. Of all the eternal truths we don't believe, this is the one we doubt most of all. Our days are not extraordinary. They're filled with the mundane, with hassles mostly. We're a dime a dozen. Nothing special really. Probably a disappointment to God. Is that what you think? But as C.S. Lewis wrote, Quote, the value of myth is that it takes all the things we know and restores to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. Unquote. You are not what you think you are. There is a glory to your life that your enemy fears and he is hell-bent on destroying that glory before you get the chance to act on it. Eldridge continues, he says, again, this is exactly what the scriptures have been trying to wake us up to for years. In Ephesians chapter 5, wake up, O sleeper, be very careful then how you live because the days are evil, or as the message puts it, so watch your step, use your head, make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times, amen? See, Christianity isn't a religion, he says, not a religion about going to Sunday school potluck suppers, being nice, holding car washes, sending our secondhand clothes off to Mexico. As good as those things might be, this is a world at war, he says. Something large and immensely dangerous is unfolding all around us. We're caught up in it. And above all, we doubt we've been given a key role to play. We need to change that perspective before Jesus comes back. Amen. Jesus presented to us a clear and present challenge with his words here at Caesarea Philippi. He did not want his followers hiding from evil. He wanted them to stand firm against the gates of hell. Amen? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Friends, let me just close with this. When you view the church as a Fortune 500 company, your strength comes through business structures and leadership principles, but when you view the church as the last bastion of hope on the front lines of a war which is humanly impossible to win, your strength must come from something else. It must come from someone else. His name is Jesus. And as we'll see next Sunday, there's something in that name. So go and give him Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us through your son Jesus. And it's, it's no small revelation. And the truth is we are a world at war. We see it around us every day. But what we don't see is the immense power of Jesus' name. We may see it at times, but we need to see it more. We need to live it more. We need to know that we are safe and secure and we have the power and authority of Jesus behind us when we share the good news of Christ with other people, whether they accept it or not. So, Father, help us to focus Focus our attention and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us walk in the dust of our rabbi, following closely in his footsteps. And Lord, as we go through this, this week leading up to Easter, help us remember what that cost him, our salvation. And let us rejoice in the fact that he is alive now. He's no longer on the cross. He's no longer in the grave. We remember it humbly. But we realize that that's all done, that the work has been finished. And he's coming again. Thank you, Father, for this word that you gave us today. And we look forward to what you're going to do in Jesus' name.